I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. Today I managed to catch up with Royal Naval Captain Chris Clough. He served in the Navy and also is a senior intelligence analyst in the UK Defence Intelligence staff, but right now he's in Calais working with refugees. Chris, welcome. Uh, Thank you, Arthur. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to talk to you on your podcast. So, Chris, um, we're going to talk about some of the maritime aspects of the Russia-Ukraine war, about some of the intelligence issues and, and the wider picture. But first off, you're in Calais. What's taken you there? I work with a, um, a super uh, UK-based uh, charity called Care for Calais. Uh, and what we do here, uh, I've been up here since um, last November. Yeah. I've done sort of five or six weeks uh, when I can, part-time. Um, and what we do basically is give uh, humanitarian support to the refugees and asylum seekers in the Calais uh, region. Um, and back in the UK, the same charity do advocacy and uh, practical support. So for example, this afternoon, I'll be up in Dunkirk at a site uh, which is mainly uh, Afghans, Kurds and uh, Syrians. Uh, and we'll be giving out tents, sleeping bags, food. And to, to link back to the Ukraine crisis, uh, yeah. I was here back in mid-March for a week or so, supporting that wave of Ukrainian uh, refugees who came to Calais, naturally thinking that it would be the sensible place to come to try to get back to the to the UK, where, of course, it was the week when, you know, the UK was struggling to work out a policy, struggling to work out where in France they would conduct sort of consulate interviews and so on. Um, but uh, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a super charity, Care for Calais. Well, let's make sure we, we'll put the details of that charity on the notes for this podcast. So you mentioned, of course, there was a wave of Ukrainian refugees that hit Calais in, in March. And that sort of takes us back to the main subject of our discussion, uh, Russia's invasion, and in particular, uh, the perspective, uh, you as a former senior naval officer, but also an intelligence analyst, uh, something we haven't really talked much about on this podcast so far is the naval war. Now, of course, everybody saw uh, the reports of the sinking of the Moskva, Russia's flagship in the Black Sea. And prior to that, people had heard about the Moskva because it was the ship that was told, uh, Russian warship, go fuck yourselves, uh, by the the Ukrainian defenders of Snake Island. But let's sort of perhaps start at a really basic level. Why is a large battleship important when we're talking about a land war, an invasion between one country and another? Well, that's that's a really good question and a great place to start. Why is Crimea, why was Crimea so important uh, to Russia? Why is the southern coast of Ukraine so important? It's all about the access uh, to the Black Sea. Why is the Black Sea important? 
Well, it's uh, it's a geostrategic focus uh, for Russia. Yep. Uh, the, the Russians have always invested uh, in their Black Sea fleet, not as much as uh, as as the Northern Fleet, uh, where where a lot of their newest and and, and best equipment, particularly their nuclear submarines, are based. But the Black Sea fleet has always been important, and 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 very much in the last seven or eight years has been a focus because it's been a basis for their deployments to the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah. Uh, they've kept a significant number of ships and submarines um, and intelligence gathering vessels off the Syrian coast, mixing it really there with uh, Western navies and other navies. Yes. You, you asked about the, what, you know, why is this important in terms of support to land operations? Yeah. Well, one of the reasons is the Russian Navy, like many other navies, have some of the most advanced weaponry. They have some of the most advanced, particularly cruise missiles, uh, but also anti-ship missiles that can be used in like a secondary mode to target places inland, as well as providing one thing which we'll come back to, I'm sure, which is the potential for an amphibious attack. Um, and the amphibious attack is, is, is something very specific, something the Russian Navy have tried to invest in in the last few years. Not always successfully, but we could we could come back to that in more detail as as you wish. So, the Moskva, perhaps you could give our listeners a sense of the scale. What sort of size of ship? What kind of equipment would it carry? What what capability would it give uh, the, the the Russian military? It is a it is a ship that's absolutely designed around its weapon systems. It epitomizes, I think, the Cold War. Yeah. Um, I think it had just come into this into service in uh, 1983. Funny enough, the year before I joined the navy, uh, and we had to learn all of the Russian uh, type different types of ships uh, yeah. by their by, by their silhouettes and so on. Back in the day when there were hundreds of ships, dozens of different classes of them, the Moskva was absolutely state of the art at the time. Russia's always invested in these very large scale fast, long-range weapons. Yeah. But as I say, they're very much designed in the 70s, built in the 80s, and those weapons, those anti-ship missiles, have effectively no effect whatsoever in this Ukraine conflict because they wouldn't have had any, any role. The Ukrainian Navy is already neutralised uh, and they don't have a land attack capability. But what the Moskva does represent, though, is it would have been able to track every aircraft across the Black Sea. Right. And it would have provided a, a command and control function supervising, if you like, uh, the other uh, Russian vessels. Uh, it would have had a more senior captain on board, it, very much a representational role as well. You know, this is a this is a warship that has done a lot of out of area deployments before supporting defense diplomacy in India, in Africa, supporting Russian influence in those areas. So it's a ship that shows up and tells the world we're a big, important, powerful naval player. Absolutely. And so it's sinking. There are, there are definitely parallels both with um, uh, the General Belgrano for the Argentinians yes. and, and I think with HMS Sheffield yeah. uh, for the Royal Navy as well, both of which we'll hear a lot more about in the next month or so as we approach the 40th anniversary of those two sinkings. Yeah. You know, the Belgrano, because that effectively put the uh, Argentinian surface fleet uh, out of action. They didn't dare approach the Falklands uh, again after that sinking. 
Uh, and, and so we'll see how this plays out for the Russian Navy over the next few weeks. Yeah. So just let's briefly talk about how it was sunk, um, yes. because clearly, uh, you know, this is a incredibly important, both prestigious, but also strategic piece of equipment of the Russian military. It must have had all kinds of special defenses. As, as I understand it, uh, it was a new Ukrainian missile, a, a, an indigenous uh, production missile that was used. Uh, how how did they do this? It's interesting to think about the the, the pedigree of these Ukrainian Neptune missiles. Yeah. Um, they themselves were based on a Russian missile. Uh, the Russians called the Kar thirty five, but that itself was based about 20, 30 years ago on the the American harpoon. It's also very similar in a lot of respects to X, the French Exocet missile, and the Chinese have got an equivalent as well. The essence of these missiles is they're sea skimmers. When they're fired, they travel about three or four meters above the uh, above the sea. That means that seen from the ship, their radar horizon, the, the point at which they can actually detect an incoming missile is only about 20 kilometers. Right. That only gives them 60 seconds until a potential impact. Wow. Uh, and even in the time that their radar might sweep around three times to form a track on a new target, the missiles are then two kilometers closer. Yeah. So unless the crew is on really high alert, that yes, they have medium range uh, defensive missiles. Yes, they have close in point defense uh, weapons. But unless those are absolutely top line, switched on, fully automated, uh, and the crew know exactly what they're doing, then effectively the ship has been struck in less time than it has taken me to finish this sentence. Yeah. And so do we think it, in a rather simple way, that's basically what happened, that possibly counteraction was taken, but it was insufficient. And, you know, basically that that was that, bang. I, I, I strongly suspect, yes. There's also, there's another element as well, which I, I'm always fascinated by, but the effects of indigenous production and the proliferation of weapon systems. Yeah. Actually, the Moskva's sort of electronic warfare and countermeasures may have interpreted this as a friendly missile because it was based on a uh -huh. Russian missile. So this is a factor that relates to two former Soviet countries fighting each other, basically. Yes, and I think uh, I, I think the same the same might be seen if uh, if we see an increase in mine warfare as well, because uh, the Ukrainian stocks of of mines uh, are all ex ex Soviet effectively as well. Yeah, so we've talked about the the sinking of this very important ship. Uh, at the same time, uh, there's been, if you like, a bit of clarification. It seems on Russia's war aims. And the view that uh, Russia is, you know, seeking now, basically to to take the Donbas, the, the the whole Donbas region, and create a sort of corridor along the Black Sea coast, possibly linking up with Transnistria, which is this region of Moldova. So, once you've lost uh, the this naval battle, uh, is that still possible? You can't. Is it possible to take Odessa? Is it possible? to secure these coastal ports, Mariupol and others, without a naval presence? So despite the, the sinking of the Moskva, the, the Russian Navy still has two 
uh, quite new and very capable uh, frigates uh, based in the Black Sea. Yeah. Uh, they call the Admiral Grigorovich um, class, and they, they, and I think we really need to watch what they will be doing over the next uh, over the next few weeks. Um, they've both got much more advanced um, defensive systems yeah. and offensive systems than the yeah. Moskva had. Uh, so they will be able to take on that role of command and control. So we'll be watching those, but also their amphibious shipping. And this is quite interesting. I think there's a bit of a story behind Russia and what they want to achieve with amphibious warfare. Um, amphibious warfare is complex. Yeah. Um, there aren't many nations in the world who, who can do it properly. And, and, you know, the US is probably the only one who can really dominate um, with amphibious warfare. Uh, warfare because it's not just a question of having two or three landing ships which is what they the, the russians do have um it's all about integration it you need highly trained troops who are quite quite familiar with operating at sea and from yeah. sea to shore you need the right type of um helicopters particularly in terms of attack helicopters and support helicopters to get troops ashore quickly all of that needs to come with the element of surprise um, and one of this, one of the things that this this invasion has shown us is that there are now so many, pretty much live sources of open source intelligence, particularly satellite coverage. I yeah. think it'd be very difficult for Russia to achieve an amphibious assault without it being signposted very early through these sort of open source um, uh, sources. And we've also seen that. Ukrainians have shown not only have they got this this capable uh, Neptune weapon system. Uh, I saw just today that the UK is now planning to send out some um, uh, brimstone missiles in due course to to Ukraine. And there's a, a little bit of confusion, I think, in terms of the press statement. But these are really useful weapons because they can be used from different platforms, from helicopters, from land, from sea, yeah. but against different types of targets as well. So against sea targets or against land targets. Uh, so they really are multi-role. And I think the Ukrainians with that combined with what they've already demonstrated in terms of person portable, um, anti-air defense and uh, anti-tank weaponry gives them a sort of fast mobility to be able to redeploy, to counter the great advantage of an amphibious assault, which is leaving the defenders guessing where that where that's going to be until the last yeah. moment. So I think if you put all those different factors together, again, very interesting to see how it may 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 play out. But I I would I would back a defender rather than an attacker. Yeah, and so in conclusion, it it sounds a bit unlikely that they would still try to do that. The Russians, uh, which then leaves them. Uh, forced to try to work their way right across the lengthy land coast that, that Ukraine has, facing fierce resistance all the way. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, so, so we may still see a sort of amphibious task group, potentially, it, but it may be, mm. it may act as a feint in terms of trying to, like I say, to keep the Ukrainian defences guessing. Just, a, just as a reminder, in 1991, in the First Gulf War, there was a significant U.S. Uh, amphibious task group that was used effectively as a as a feint. But again, yeah. that was in a completely different generation in terms of the availability of satellite imagery and, and, and other sources. 
So, Chris, um, right at the beginning, you noted the sort of geostrategic importance of the Black Sea. We've discussed the fact that you've got shipping being blown up. You've also mentioned mines. And and that reminds me uh, of a period when the Persian Gulf was a very complicated and contested area. Uh, You had minesweeper patrols. And it certainly wasn't a place that, you know, people would go for a, for a holiday or, or a sort of cruise. Um, has the Black Sea become a dangerous and unpredictable bit of the world's ocean? Uh, and will it remain that for some time? It's quite likely. Um, I think the one thing to, to, to say to listeners is if you can see a mine, that's not the one to worry about. Right. Um, the mines that we the mines that we see the pictures of the classic sort of big metal like a big metal conker with the with the uh, horns on the outside. Yeah. I don't think anybody has produced something like that for a good sixty or seventy years. Right. So those are almost pre Cold War. Those are very much Second World War uh, sea mines. Yeah. Uh, what the Russians do have though is they do still have a stock of thousands and thousands of these. Um, you know, so so they would. Um, so there's no shortage of them in the world. Yeah, um, and they do affect people's calculations. Much more dangerous are mines which are laid on the seabed or tethered to the seabed, uh, and much more dangerous also because of uh, developments in 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 mine warfare means that they can be triggered by different uh, influences, not just a ship actually hitting, hit, right. you know, physically hitting it. So it can be triggered by the sound or the, um, the the pressure created by by ships as they pass over. So I would be much more worried about mines that we can't see. There have been reports and, and I think photographs of some of these old fashioned mines uh, off the Ukrainian coast. It will be very difficult to, I think, know who was responsible for them. Possibly more likely it's more in Ukraine's interest to affect the risk calculations of the Russians given that Ukraine no longer has a as an effective navy or or yeah. any other form of uh, shipping uh, off their coast. But equally, the Russians could potentially use uh, mine warfare to their own benefit, particularly to neutralise the importance of, of Odessa as a, as, as a port. So we'll be grappling with this issue perhaps long after the last shot has been fired in the land war. Well, there are still um, there's still mines in uh, in the Baltic Sea left over from the first uh, from the Second World War, um, yeah. and they, they still turn up from time to time. Yeah. So, uh, one more factor to feed into the uh, overall calculation of of, of what happens um, yeah. along that coastal element of uh, Ukraine. There. Yeah. So, we we talked quite a lot about the kind of maritime perspective. We should talk actually about the war itself, sort of where that's gone, where it's going. Your perspective as a, as a former intelligence analyst, and obviously you've served in the military in, in a senior capacity. Um, it feels as if the tables have been turned now in the sense that at the beginning, you had Russia trying to uh, take territory in the north, particularly around Kiev. Um, and basically failing to do that. And there was a lot of talk about the defender advantage that, that you, you, you basically need a fairly overwhelming number of troops to dislodge defenders. Now, I wonder whether that's actually where Ukraine is now. Ukraine, that the focus has moved to the Donbass. Of course, the Russians have been in the Donbass in one form or another since 2014. Um, so is it now Ukraine needs that a numerical advantage and Russia has the 
the advantage of being a, a defender. Is, is that sort of where we're at now in, in this conflict? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, and of course, as we've seen the sort of grinding tactics of Russia when it comes to trying to take cities, towns and cities, the, the only way they can do it is to stand back and use artillery and other heavy weaponry at the it, tragic cost to the civilian population. Yeah. Um, whereas, of course, Ukraine, if they're trying to retake territory, the last thing they'd want to do is to use that same sort of process yes. of inflicting even more damage on their own territory to try to retake it. It depends hugely, I think, what type of weapons they get. They've asked for heavy artillery and heavy tanks and so on from, from uh, some other Western countries. Um, I think just yesterday, though, we saw this, this promise of over $30 billion from the USA, yeah. which is um, quite extraordinary. And as I think somebody pointed out, was bigger than all but maybe six or seven countries in the world's defence budget, wow. just in terms of aid for, for yeah. Ukraine. But that doesn't, you know, money doesn't translate into military capability. Yeah. And so what's your um, best assessment of where this is headed? Are the Ukrainians going to sort of try to fight the Russians to a standstill and negotiate? Or do you think they're going to try to push every last Russian off Ukrainian territory? And perhaps we'll put the Crimea to one side, but certainly the Donbass and the sort of eastern flank of Ukraine. So much depends on, we talk about the front line, you know, and if the front line becomes static yeah. uh, in eastern and southern Ukraine, we talk about that as being the military front line, but of course there are there, there are two other front lines. There's the economic front line in yeah. Russia, uh, and there's the information front line. I think particularly in Russia as well, and how long the Russian economy can survive, how long the control of information within Russia can survive, yeah. um, I think might be even more significant than just that military front line which could easily just become a, a, you know, a static battlefield with both sides evenly matched in terms of, you know, logistics and the other thing. Then the other factor, of course, is morale of yeah. the troops. And when you see the morale of the, of the Ukrainians and everything that they've ha had to fight for, but fought so successfully for in defence, um, compared to the morale of Russian troops, uh, that is a force multiplier. Yeah. And the other thing uh, I'd be interested in your take on is the sort of the role of what we might call special operations or covert operations. Historically, uh, well, just in, in the last few years, I think we've all become rather perhaps over impressed with the Russians ability to carry out kind of grey zone operations, the little green men that took the Crimea in, in 2014. Uh, it's not been very clear that Russia has been able to capitalise on this in this conflict. But also, I don't know whether or not the Ukrainians have been able to do much in, in the other direction. Uh, but as at the time of we're recording this, there's been a lot of speculation about what might be happening in Transnistria, which of course is on, on Ukraine's western yes. border. And is Russia trying to sort of create a diversionary conflict there, perhaps to pull uh, Ukrainian resources away from the, the conflict in, in the east, in the Donbass? Uh, yes, fascinating. Um, and I think one of the things which has been marked since the invasion in February 
has been what you might describe the lack of success of that sort of hybrid grey zone operation that Western nations all revered uh, Russia for. Yeah. But also, you know, two can play at any game. And um, we were we were also talking about huge fires uh, in the last week yeah. or so the, 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 in in slightly random locations here across Russia. There's the Air Research and Development Institute, a chemical yeah. plant and um, oil, oil depot, a long way behind what you might describe as, as Russian lines. And I was struck by the fact that they didn't just look like arson. They didn't. These were proper conflagrations. Yes. Um, they're, they're certainly not sort of operational targets. They're not really, you know, they're not necessarily military yeah. targets, but it, but it's things that must be really unsettling the Russians and, and, and ruffling their feathers. And I don't think we're aware of any Russian activists or Russian sort of coordination which might be in support of Ukraine. Yeah. Well, I don't know if there are Ukrainian expats in Russia, potentially, could potentially be special forces or, or intelligence agencies mm. potentially aided with Western intelligence, as we know that a lot of Ukrainian um, targeting has yeah. been. Um, and it could even potentially, and, and I'm talking about pure speculation here, because I know that a lot of nations have been investing in um, offensive cyber yeah. capability. And this is the sort of thing that, offensive cyber would really like to be able to do, particularly when you look at potentially breaching what would be quite advanced security systems, potentially disabling firefighting capability, you know, creating flammable mixtures by, you know, through leaks and sparks and so on. I really don't know. Utter utter speculation. What is interesting is there's very little talk about it, I think, in the press at the moment. And, And again, very interesting to see if there are going to be more of these sort of conflagrations, because of course it's very, very difficult for Russia to do anything to protect because they have such a, a landmass and so many yeah. different potential targets if if those first three or four were representative. Now, mindful that this is speculation, uh, if this were the work, let's say it was, it was a very clever offensive cyber attack that effectively caused a sort of meltdown in a system that you know led, led to a fire and 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 as you say this isn't just a little fire that someone started in a corner these are big destructive conflagrations if that was being done by western nations by a nato country probably the us they're probably the ones who've got the greatest capability in that space the risk of escalation um from the russian side would seem to me to be very high the russians are already upping the ante with their rhetoric, basically sort of threatening the West, sort of saying that you've pushed too far. So reminding listeners that I am speculating here, that feels to me that it is much more likely that this has Ukrainian fingerprints on it. And it's probably important that it has Ukrainian fingerprints on it, because then it doesn't give the Russians uh, an excuse to, you know, fire off a missile into Poland or or do something similar with their own cyber capability. What's your take on, on that? you know, that argument. Oh, I'd agree completely. You know, we have to think about the Russian high command and, and Putin's state of mind generally in terms of the, you know, paranoia, things going badly, badly wrong. The use of tactical nuclear weapons is is, is fundamentally part of Russian doctrine as a normal escalation in their terms from a conventional war. It's, it, you know, it's at a much lower threshold than, than, than in, in the West. 
So the absolute last thing that the Western nations will want to do is to upside a very delicate uh, balancing act in terms of not supporting Ukraine whilst not escalating and being there being absolutely no chance of having their you know fingerprints on something which involves uh, operations within Russia itself. Yeah. And I think that final point takes us perhaps to a sort of high-level strategic question. Some people are saying that, you know, as Western nations, we've been sort of pulling our punches, that we need to raise the stakes, that perhaps, you know, someone should turn off the lights in Moscow. Um, what What's your view on that? Do, do, do you think that's, as it were, pushing it too far, risking escalation out of control? Or do, or do you think that's you know, something that, that that might need to happen? I would suggest there are too many unknowns to risk any form of escalation. Yeah. In my, my time in um, defence intelligence, we we did a number of war games when we were looking at the uh, a sort of fairly conventional NATO Article 5 type scenarios. And our knowledge of Russian doctrine, uh, fast action, escalate to freeze and then negotiate. Yeah. And the consideration of loss of life, the consideration, the, the, those sorts of um, equations are completely different from uh, the West. Yeah. And if we try to think, over, it's easy to start to, to, to overthink or to over mirror our own perspectives onto their way of thinking. Yeah. So the, the support to Ukraine's uh, defensive uh, and increasingly offensive capability is one thing. Uh, but to actually take direct action against Russia, against against its military, against its decision-making processes, is a is a, is a very dangerous game to be wary of. Chris Clough, that feels like a, a very good uh, message to end this discussion on. Thank you very much for your insights, for your drawing on your experience and, and your knowledge. Uh, it's been great to have you here on Doomsday Watch. Thanks, Arthur. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and um, thank you for the opportunity to uh, to contribute to your podcast. Thank you.